0: like you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to revisit this morning the text that we looked at last week. And my hope last week was just to give you an overview, uh, an, an, an introduction of sorts to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And and my main goal was to to help us to understand that we cannot understand 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we can't understand the parts of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 unless we understand the whole. It's possible that you could come to this text as many have before and be somewhat to very confused about this text, to get wrapped up in all of the details and become confused. It's, this text has become, it has been said, probably one of the most difficult in all of Pauline literature to be able to understand and, and comprehend. And so last week I just wanted to give a, a flyover, an overview, an introduction to the chapter, and you need to really remember that the Apostle Paul is saying what he says here with a desire to comfort persecuted, suffering, confused Christians. Why were they so confused? They were confused about what was going on around them. They expected that the church was going to be snatched away. They expected that the church was going to be, receive the, the upward call, as we would say, in Christ Jesus. They were expecting that the church was going to be called up to heaven to be with the Lord and thus not face the time of God's wrath. A time that is referred to throughout the scriptures as the day of the Lord. But here's what was going on. They were experiencing a great deal of persecution. And along with that persecution came a great deal of suffering that they were enduring. And you know what happens, don't you? When you go through suffering, you begin to waffle. You begin to wonder. And that's what was happening. They were beginning to waffle a bit, wondering if they missed the snatching away. Wondering if they missed being caught up together with the Lord in the air. On top of that. So you got suffering, you got persecution, you got difficulty that's producing all this waffling, but on top of that, you add false teachers to the mix. False teachers coming in to Thessalonica, claiming to be from the Apostle Paul with this message. And maybe, maybe they say, you know, maybe they, they, they give a prophecy in the midst of the church service. Maybe somebody gives us a message. Probably somebody wrote a letter claiming to be from the Apostle Paul. To to this end, the day of the Lord has already come. Paul said that in in 2 Timothy. You know, there were those who had this particularly odd kind of false teaching, saying the resurrection has already passed. Well, you can imagine how that would have affected those people. Imagine, put yourself into this. I'm not just talking about a week or two of being sick. I'm talking about wave after wave of suffering, wave after wave of persecution, just knocking you down, knocking you down. You know, when I was a kid, there was that that, uh, uh, video game and you hear the guy going, body blow, body blow, that one body blow after another, right hook, right? One right after another and, and then the false teachers come in and you just begin to waffle like, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I didn't have it. Right. You can imagine how they would have taken all this. Some, we, we know how they would have taken because we're like that. Some would have just shut down, decided they weren't going to do anything anymore, not going to do anything anymore, just become idle, busybodies, refuse to work because after all, what? We missed it. Just refuse to work, refuse to do anything, just become idle, busybodies. And others said, hey, they grew weary and well-doing, right? They just said, what good is it? What I do for Christ doesn't make a difference anyway. Look, it's just one suffering, one trial after another, one difficulty after another. I'm just going to call it quits. Is it even really worth it? And that's what happens in the midst of this suffering and in the midst of the confusion that the Thessalonians were going through. But here comes Paul writing Second Thessalonians, and here in chapter 2, he's calling them to, to avoid being disoriented, being distressed, and being deceived. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, this is one event. Remember, we talked about that last week. One event, our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind. To be shaken is to be disoriented or alarmed. To be alarmed is to be distressed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be. From us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one deceive you in any way. He's telling them, avoid being disoriented, avoid being distressed, avoid being deceived. Why? Because that's what often happens to Christians in the throes of difficulty, especially when we begin to think about issues of the future. What are we really to believe? How are we really to live in light of all these things that are going on in our lives? Well, last week, again, just introduced the chapter, and we found a general approach to that question. How are we to live? How are we to think about issues of the future? What's going on around us? Paul's main desire in chapter 2 is not to necessarily establish a well-ordered, detailed eschatology, Paul's point is pastoral more than predictive. He wants to comfort the believers. And basically what we learned last week, that if we're going to learn to face the end times with what he says in chapter 2, verse 16, is eternal comfort and good hope, If if we're going to learn to face these uncertain days and uncertain times with eternal comfort and good hope, there are two things that must be real in our lives. Number one, we must be saved by grace through faith. You have to be saved. You have to be rescued from the penalty of your sin. You must be rescued from the wrath of God by grace through faith. The only way we can face Uncertain times, especially as we look to the future, is to be saved by grace through faith. And that's what he speaks about near the end there of chapter 2 and verses 13 through 17. He says how how God chose us to be be the first fruits, to be saved through the sanctification of the Spirit. That is the Spirit setting us apart that we might be able to hear the gospel and embrace the truth of who Christ is, saved by grace through faith. If you're not saved by grace through faith, it is not possible for you to have any kind of comfort or any kind of hope in these days. But if you are saved by grace through faith, which means you've embraced the truth of the gospel, the apostolic gospel, the message that has been delivered in the pages of the New Testament, then you can have comfort and hope. The second thing that must be real in your life is you've got to be steadfast by faith through grace. You're gonna be saved by grace through faith, and you're gonna be steadfast by faith through uh, grace. And what is that? Well, he says here that there is this sense of uh, of of putting your roots down and and weathering the storm and just staying with it. He said, if you got to do that, think first of all, be rejoicing, rejoice in what God has done in your life, brothers and sisters. Take time to rejoice in this. Think about how God has set his love on you. How the message of the gospel came to you. And and your ears were opened. Your hard heart was softened. Your mind was opened. To embrace the truth of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice. If you're going to be steadfast, take a minute to rejoice in what God has done. Put your roots down in that. And and be reminded of truth that you know. Constantly come back to the scriptures. and, And be reliant on the Lord like he says here. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. Gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. In other words, come to the point of being reliant on God. God, I need you in the midst of these days. May you rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father To strengthen you. And that's really the point of this passage. The point of chapter 2. Is God is bringing us. To eternal comfort and good hope. By teaching us. About the day of the Lord. And more specifically. About teaching us. Of the revelation. Of a very real person. Called Antichrist. Now. I typically do a manuscript. When I'm preaching. That means I I write this out word for word just like i'm going to bring it to you and when i wrote that last statement that that he's bringing us to eternal comfort and good hope by revealing to us the day of the lord and the coming of antichrist i stopped sat back in my chair and thought how in the how in the world is that comforting christians let me comfort you there's a day of wrath coming on the whole world and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to be revealed. Ah, oh, won't you feel so much better? How in the world is there any comfort in that? Well, for them and for us, it's a reminder that the day of the Lord, first of all, has not yet come. We've not missed the catching away. We've not missed the catching away of, of the church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why? Well, in order to help the church, Paul goes back to what he taught them when he was there. And apparently, when he was there in Thessalonica, he led them through a synopsis of Old Testament teaching regarding this one called the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. Let me just remind you again. We've already established that Paul's point here is not predictive so much as it is pastoral. But this is also what is happening here in chapter 2 is we are gaining a snapshot of apostolic teaching, the apostolic teaching that was received by the early church. You get an idea here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about what Paul actually said to the local churches in which he taught and specifically to this one in Thessalonica, which was a fairly young church. But what I think is interesting is that this provides a snapshot, this provides a a glimpse into how he taught them, and what does he teach them? He teaches them about issues of eschatology. He teaches them about issues of the end times, the last days. Now, we might think, that young Christians really shouldn't get involved in that. That young Christians really should just abstain, withdraw themselves from issues of eschatology. These are things for Bible scholars and and seminaries and whatnot. And, And of course, I don't want to discourage those things. They're very, very helpful. But I want to remind you that it's often those very same people who make these issues more difficult than they really have to be. And what we have here in 2 Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, is a synopsis of the things that Paul taught them with the intent to encourage them, with the intent to comfort them, with the intent to establish their hearts for every good work and word. Second Thessalonians 2, 17. That's where he's going. So I want to show you a, a, a synopsis of what Paul taught regarding this man of sin, the son of destruction, Antichrist, and how that leads them and leads us to have a firmly established heart in every good work and word. Let's look at the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and we'll note this morning four elements of his teaching. Four elements of his teaching. Let's begin reading here in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So let me draw your attention to four elements of Paul's teaching. Four ingredients, four lessons, if you will, in Paul's teaching. Number one, he says this. One who opposes God will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. It's the first element. One who opposes God will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. That's the first thing that I notice here in in chapter uh, 2, verse 4. He he is referred to as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He opposes God. Now, Satan opposed God from before the foundation of the world. His hatred of God rages against everyone and everything that God loves. He particularly wanted to destroy the promised one. He particularly wanted to destroy and oppose God in terms of the Messiah. And listen, Satan did everything in his power. Satan did everything he could do to destroy the Messiah by destroying the Messianic line. We see that throughout the scriptures. You see that throughout the Old Testament. I believe that the Apostle Paul must have taken the the believers there at Thessalonica through the Old Testament and taught them this. We see that evidence in the Garden of Eden when Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve and plunged the world into sin. We we see it as we go through the scriptures in Genesis chapter 6 with the the demon-possessed line. Right, the, all, the, the whole purpose there when the, the sons of God went down and, and had relationship with, with, with earthly women and producing this, this demon-possessed line, uh, all of the idea of destroying the messianic line, destroying the messianic promises. If Satan could destroy God's or, or interfere with God's promises, he could call into question the credibility of God. He could bring God down, right? You, you can trace this through Exodus 1. What happens in Exodus 1? There is this, all the male babies being born of Hebrew women were supposed to be killed. Why? To destroy the messianic line. You see Satan infiltrating the people of Israel with aching sin in the book of Joshua. So much evil. I read this morning, Second Chronicles 21 and 22, so much evil in the midst of of that passage, that the Messianic line actually came down to one child who had to be kept in hiding. And if he had been killed, the Messianic line would have been ended. You think about the opposition to the work of Ezra, The work of Nehemiah, you think about the attempted holocaust in the book of Esther. And then on to the the attempted holocaust by Herod as all of the male children two years and under were sentenced to death there in Bethlehem. The amazing thing is that Satan, though he opposes God in every way, could not keep the Messiah from coming. He could not keep the Christ from coming. So when he couldn't do that, he decided, okay, if I can't beat him, let me join him. And so he comes in and starts tempting Jesus. And when that didn't work, he inspired the religious leaders in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 to throw him off of the cliff. Even he worked through one of his closest companions, the apostle Peter in Matthew 16, trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross Remember in completing the work of redemption remember what Jesus said to Peter get behind me he didn't say peter did he get behind me who satan you would think that satan who is no dummy would understand that his goose is cooked and he would just sort of give up but he didn't he couldn't keep the messiah from coming and then he couldn't keep the messiah from from dying But he continued his assault. Even today, friends, Satan is trying to prevent God from keeping his promises. He's trying to keep God from fulfilling his plan in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me how Satan has continued his all-out attack, especially on the people of Israel. When I consider this, it's just amazing to me, no other nation on the face of the earth has faced the single-minded attack, such as the land of Israel. We saw that in the 1940s with Hitler's Third Reich. A single-minded attack on the Jewish race, which inspired an entire world war, all with the plan on bringing death. To Israel, think of the hatred of the Arabs for the Jews or the constant desire to wipe them off of the face of the earth. Why all this? Why am I telling you this? Well, friend, listen. I am telling you that this is a satanically inspired effort to destroy the credibility of Almighty God because if, listen, if Satan can destroy Israel, he can destroy the plan of God. He can destroy the credibility of God. The Old Testament prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, to name a few, looked to this one who would be a false shepherd. Daniel called him the prince who is to come. John, in the book of Revelation, saw the one who's called the beast. He's a political ruler who is to come. And He will seek to lead Israel to utter destruction so that God cannot be faithful to fulfill His promises to Israel. And if God cannot fulfill His promises to Israel, He cannot fulfill His promises to us. He is not a credible Savior. And that's what Satan, this and then this one who is to come, who will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship. The early church understood this so much that John could say, 1 John 2.18, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. This was something that was known in the early church. Not only does he oppose... And I, and I want to move on quickly. He opposes God, but not, not only that, he proclaims himself to be God. So, just looking under this first point, one who opposes God will take a seat in the temple of God to proclaim himself to be God. Just think about that. This man now, and 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 I'm not. I I am. I'm, I'm taking this to be a, a reference to an actual person. Right. This is not a, a concept. This is not a, a a thought. This is not an idea. This is an actual person. This man will come and he will set himself up in the temple and ultimately proclaim himself to be God. Now, I'm just taking this literally. I don't have any textual reason to believe otherwise. There aren't any other details given by Paul here, so I don't, you know, maybe we can pull some other scriptures in and try to piece things together from other scriptures, but that's not the point here. The point is that this man will set himself up in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God, unlike what Antiochus Epiphanes had done, unlike what others had done in the past, this man will set himself up in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. He will, he will bring worship, not simply to himself, but ultimately to his, his own God who is Satan. And this is what Paul's teaching. This was one of the elements of Paul's teaching to the Thessalonian church. Namely, that one will come who opposes Uh, One who opposes God will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. But there's a second element to his teaching. And that is this. Someone is currently restraining him. Someone is currently restraining him. Now we said that last week. There isn't any detail provided here. He just says, uh, verse 6, you know what is is restraining him. And then verse 7, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. Just a snapshot here. We don't have all the details, but Paul's just reminding the Thessalonians of what he taught them. What is it? Someone is currently restraining him. Now, part of that is his teaching, and this is, I think, a key part in this text, and I want to highlight to you, and that is in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Mystery. According to Romans chapter 16, a mystery is something that has been kept secret for a long time. The mystery of lawlessness, the full realization of lawlessness is to come, but the mystery of lawlessness is at work right now. 1 John 3 4 tells us that lawlessness is sin. Right? The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2 verse 18 that. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. Already at work. First John chapter four verse thir- three, uh, verse three. Paul tells us in Second Timothy verse three, uh, chapter three verse thirteen that things are going to go on getting fr- from worse to worser. Right? It's going to go from bad to worse. It's just going to keep on getting worse and worse and worse. But one, even though the mystery of lawlessness, we don't know the full uh, uh, blossoming of that wicked flower, it's at work right now. We don't know the fullness of that. He says it's at work right now, but he says one is currently restraining him or it, the day of the Lord. If you can imagine this, friends, this this just blows my mind. As bad as things might, you, you, you might think things are right now, this is nothing. It's nothing. Because there is someone, and I'm putting capital S, someone standing in the way. I believe the one who is doing the restraining is God himself. Lots of different... Uh, Suggestions as to the one restraining. Some said maybe it was the Roman Empire. Some say it's human government. Some say it's the church. Some say it's the preaching of the gospel. Some say it's the apostles themselves. Uh, I'm just taking this, generally speaking, to refer to God and God can work through all of those things. Does God work through human government? He certainly does. Romans 13 tells us that. Does God work through the gospel? Of course he does that. Does God work through his church? Of course he does that. But right now, there is a restraining influence on this world, keeping back the day of the Lord. And he says, since the day of the Lord is not going to come until the revelation of this, this one who opposes God and sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped of God, there is a restraining influence on that one. He is keeping things at bay until the right time. He's, this is a time for the influence of the gospel. This is a time of God is holding back that day. But one day when he is taken out of the way, he, the Antichrist, will be revealed. The Bible says that in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, I think it's in Revelation chapter 9, that he will on the God will open up the pit and release a demonic infiltration on this world such has never been seen when he is taken out of the way and what's that mean well i I think it's the same idea as when paul referred to romans chapter one where where god has abandoned those in in their wickedness abandoned them to their wickedness god will there's coming a day where god will withdraw his hand he will take away his restraining hand And give the power, because remember the devil is God's devil, give the permission, give the power of the devil to have his freedom in the world. And I believe that that will take place during a yet future time called the tribulation, the great tribulation. This is a statement of judgment. When God steps back and gives this world over to its proper judgment, when God removes his hand, there is one, 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 first element: there is one who opposes God who will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God, but someone is currently restraining him. Number third, three element: This one, not the one who is restraining him, but the one who is to be revealed, will be satanically empowered in order to deceive those who do not love the truth. He will be satanically empowered. In order to deceive those who do not love the truth. Now just show you down here in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one. And we're talking about this. I, Paul is not speaking so much chronologically here. He's just reminding them of the synopsis. He's just providing them a summary of his teaching to remind them. So that being in, my, in mind there. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Activity there is the word energy. He is, energized. he is satanically energized with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He will be satanically empowered in order to deceive those who do not love the truth. Keep your finger there in 2 Thessalonians and just turn very quickly with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 in verses 1 through 10, we have a, a picture here, a revelation of one who's called the first beast, this is Antichrist. There is a, a second beast, this is a, a, the, in verse 11 through verse 18, we would call him the false prophet. What we have here really is the unholy trinity. You have the, the dragon who is Satan himself, you have the first beast who is the Antichrist and this second beast, I believe, who is the false prophet prophet. Now look here at verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to, to it the dragon gave his power and his authority and uh, in his throne and great authority. Now that's the point I wanted to make. This beast, this this antichrist, will be satanically empowered for the purpose of deceiving those who do not love the truth. Paul tells us that he will perform all kinds of wonders that only leads people to further deception. Similar to what happened in, in, the days with, with, in, in the days of Egypt. In Pharaoh with, with uh, Moses and Aaron. And they did their wonders. And remember Pharaoh had his wonder workers. Who could up to a point reproduce the, the wonders and the works. The, the signs, so if you will, that Aaron had produced. And that, that uh, Moses had produced. Well these, he will, he will have come with satanic energy And be able to perform all kinds of amazing wonders and all kinds of amazing things. Whoever knows what that might be. Paul doesn't give us any detail. Again, you can maybe bring some other scriptures in there and plug that in. Try to get an understanding of what that might be. But amazing signs and wonders for the purpose of deceiving others. But not only that, continue there in Revelation chapter 13. Look at this. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marvelled as they followed the beast. Right, this marvel, wonders, amazing things, and they—that's the whole world—worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast, and who can worship? Uh, who can fight against it?" Down in verse eight, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. He will lead others to worship Him and lead others to worship Satan. He is a satanically empowered, satanically inspired in order to deceive those who do not love the truth. Now keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. The fourth element of Paul's teaching is this, back in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and that is that he that satanically empowered one who is being restrained, who will come to oppose God, exalt himself against God and proclaim himself to be God, that one will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's not chronology here, but Paul's just making statements here. Verse seven, mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Throughout the scriptures, you see this throughout the book of Revelation, you see the Lord Jesus Christ with his mouth opening and a sword coming out of his mouth. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.16, repent, and if not, I will come to you and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 19.15 from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Revelation 19.21 and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. The picture here I think we're safe in saying that there's some symbol that is represented here is the authority of the word of the lamb. I've told you before that I I remember I don't remember in in which uh, Lord of the Rings movie it was but I think they were, in, uh, uh, they, they were being attacked in Helm's Deep and all of a sudden Gandalf comes from the east and, and he's rushing down the hill and you just see him open his mouth and then the very next scene, all of the orcs are just destroyed, right? To me, just a beautiful picture. I couldn't help but to remember the, the, the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ coming and bringing his powerful word and destroying the armies. that are arrayed against him. This one has, it will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm sure I could bring some other elements into this teaching, but these are four main elements that sort of um, summarize the teaching of the Apostle Paul. One, there will be one who opposes God and will take him, his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. Two, someone is currently restraining him. Three, He will be satanically empowered in order to deceive those who do not love the truth. For he will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of that for what? All of that with the intended end, Paul says, that you be comforted. But not just comforted, that your heart may be established in every good work and word. Now, this, it's so important that you get this church. You can get to the point in your life where you think that your service to Christ and your life for Christ is just meaningless or pointless. That's what was happening to the Thessalonians. They're becoming busybody, idle busybodies. Growing weary in doing good. Verse 13 of chapter 3, As for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Maybe, maybe you look around and you see that the things don't make much sense that are going on today. And, and you get confused with the plethora of eschatological ideas that are on the scene. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doubting them. I'm not dissing them. I'm just saying maybe you find yourself getting confused over all those things that take place and the things that go on in your life, and you're getting confused and distressed and disoriented. And maybe you've heard teaching over the years that contradicts what the Word says. And normally you would just stick to the Word, but the way things are going, you're beginning to to doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ will appear in the clouds and and call all genuine believers to Himself. You're beginning to, to doubt that. This text is a reminder to you. It's a reminder to me that God is at work. This is a reminder to you that he is not being frustrated by anything or anyone. And Paul's just saying, don't you remember what I taught you when I was there? I taught you this and this and this. And just the synopsis of these little rapid bullet points. I gave you this and this and this. And and with the end that, oh, that's right, that's right. And then he says, may God establish your heart for every good work. That there might not be one good work that you would say, you know what? I'm just calling it quits. I'm stepping back. I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm so confused. I'm so, uh, you know, discouraged. I'm just going to give up. And and just like the writer of Hebrews reminds the, the, the readers that no genuine work of love is in vain. That's what this is about. think about this, you know, I'm trying to ask myself a question, how do I apply this text to myself? And I think what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, since all these things will take place, since since this will take place, brothers and sisters, what manner of people ought you to be? Or what, what John said in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Let's be actively seeking sanctification. Let's be actively seeking holiness and righteousness because of the truth that is revealed here. You might not, every eschatological itch that you have may not be scratched in this text and that's not the point. The point is to tell you the the, the certainty of these things. So may God establish, root your heart for every good work to get up tomorrow morning and realize that what you do for Christ is not in vain. Whether you're teaching your kids or putting in a long day's work in the office, it's not in vain. This is God's word to us to remind us that He is a faithful God. He can be trusted and that's how you should leave here today knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that God can be trusted and that's exactly what he's calling for in your heart and in my heart today next week we're going to take a brief break from this study in 2nd Thessalonians 2 and we're going to talk about a biblical approach to uh, sexual immorality in our day, and I'll give you a little bit more about that next week while we're doing that. But then we're going to come back and join in in verses 11 and 12 and talk about the condemnation of those who do not believe, just to take a moment to to refer to, to the condemnation of those who do not believe, sort of as a warning to anyone who would be here who's not believing, but also as a reminder to the seriousness of this of this stuff friends eternity hangs in the balance for people eternity hangs in the balance and so ask ourselves what how that would apply to us and then we'll continue on in second Thessalonians chapter two may the Lord add his blessing to the hearing of his word today let's pray together